Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. In today's episode on the how-to of studying the Bible, let's begin at the exact spot so many of us are at right now. You find yourself struggling to spend time with God. It's what a lot of us say in a million different ways, such as, I want to spend time with God, but I'm so busy, especially in the mornings. I don't know where to begin. I get easily distracted and my mind wanders anytime I try to pray or read my Bible. I don't understand the verses I read. I feel guilty for not having a consistent study time, so then I just avoid it altogether. I certainly don't have all the answers. I have struggled with all of these things and more myself. What I do know is this. God loves us, and He wants us to come to Him just as we are. Don't worry about where you used to be or where you wish you were. Just start with God right where you are right now. He doesn't set a timer and judge us for how long we spend with Him. Too often, we stay away from God because we feel inadequate or guilty even. But He truly wants us to engage in a growing relationship with Him. That's it. Period. With that in mind, my friends, let's just start. Together. The God of the universe is ready and waiting with open arms to spend time with us. Amazing. Just amazing when you really think about that, my friends. Let me say it one more time to be sure we all heard it. The God of the universe is ready and waiting with open arms to spend time with us. He longs for us to know Him and is just waiting to reveal Himself to us on the pages of our Bibles. Wow. Now that we have those obstacles in the open and out of the way even, let's start with this truth. The Bible is overwhelming and often intimidating. There, I said it out loud. It's a huge book that probably often doesn't make sense to you at all. We all struggle to understand the Bible. You know we do. These 66 books, an all-in-one library of books actually, were written by 40 different authors over the course of 1,600 years. It's made up of historical accounts and instruction, handwritten letters to churches and other individuals, prophecy, poetry, praise and worship songs, personal conversations, and eyewitness accounts of Jesus even. Each book of the Bible gives us deeper insights and additional looks into what God was saying or doing with His people during specific points along the timeline of the narrative of the Bible story. But, spoiler alert, the books of the Bible are not entirely in order. I know. This really complicates things even further. When you are reading, you can't always assume the next book is the next thing that happened chronologically. Unless, of course, you're using a chronological reading plan or even a chronological Bible. And can I just say here, thank you to those who went before us to figure out the actual order of the Bible's storyline. <sighs> Please know that I am mentioning all of this straight up complexity as we start, only because if you've ever felt overwhelmed trying to piece it all together or even struggle to know where to begin, well, just don't. Don't feel overwhelmed, and definitely don't feel alone in those struggles. Truthfully, who is up to the task of reading a 66-volume set of anything and keeping up with all the information, all the characters' lives, getting all the details down right, and understanding how it all fits together without any help? Not me for sure. 
However, I must say the most amazing thing about all of these numerous randomly placed books is that they do tell one story about the God who made us, loves us, redeems us, and rescues us, plus has a purpose and future for each one of us. So let's just admit here and now that you may think it's boring and hard to understand, because I know I did before I learned how to read and study the importance behind it. But real growth doesn't just come from church attendance, my friends. It's also from developing a personal relationship with God. And one of the ways that relationship grows is through studying scripture. Trust me when I say I hope this is only the beginning or a continuation for some of you of a lifetime digging into the pages of God's word. You may be asking yourself right about now, how can we ever get all of this in a lifetime of study even? The answer is we can't. But the beauty of seeking God on these pages is that he wants to be found over and over and over again. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, in the New Living Translation says, Keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. Truthfully, though, Jesus is also found throughout every bit of this one single story as well. And that's the part some people have missed about the Bible and about him. I know I had. Jesus shows up in places we never even knew to look. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says the Old Testament is all about him, that it is full of Jesus, my friends. He doesn't just show up in a manger in the book of Matthew. He's there all along, even since Genesis chapter 1 and the creation of the world. So keep looking for Jesus as we study, for prophecies of him, for pictures of him, and even some surprise visits he makes to earth prior to his birth. Keep your eyes peeled, friends. He is there just waiting to be found by you. And I promise we'll be discovering and talking about him along the way. What is most important to remember here, though, is that nothing in scripture is there by chance. This is the most beautiful part of God's word. We can never get to the end of it. There's always more to learn, to dig into, to piece together. Isn't that amazing? These thin paper pages of the Bible can feel very intimidating. So many pages, names, places, unfamiliar words. But something happens when you go to this book and flip through the pages for yourself. Remember this, friends. The Bible wasn't written for a few experts to understand while confusing and even baffling the rest of us. Nope. The Bible was written for us. God wrote it for you and for me. And with that being the case, we need to decide here and now, before we even begin our study time together, to erase any part of our negative self-talk that says we aren't smart enough or educated enough or even spiritual enough. We need to know without a doubt that God created us to understand his word with no need for commentaries or seminary degrees. Those are great, but those are extras. Let's have it be our goal to build our spiritual muscle by being able to break down the scripture text for ourselves instead of relying on Bible studies, podcast sermons, books, and so on to teach us what we can find for ourselves in God's word. Friends, hear me and trust me when I say that we are both more than able and more than capable to go deep for ourselves. So yes, I stand corrected from earlier in my own podcast. The Bible is actually not something we should ever feel intimidated by. So there you have it. Now that we've covered this framework and these ground rules, it's time to grab a pen, some paper or a journal even, and of course our Bibles to meet with God, Jesus, and possibly even ourselves on those crinkly pages. 
Now that we are ready to begin, let's look at a few tips to help us get the most out of our individual Bible study time and when we meet together on this podcast. Study tip number one, always begin your study time in prayer. Pray for help in understanding what we are reading. Pray believing that God has something he wants to speak into our lives individually each and every day. Truths he wants to uncover and insights about himself he wants to reveal. Number two, learn as much as you can about the background of the book we're studying. See who wrote it, who did they write it to, when it was written, where it was written from, and the literary style in which it was written. Knowing the context of the book is going to play a major part in understanding what it says and how it influences you. You can find this type of information in the book introductions in your study Bible. Maybe even look to various study Bible introductions and online resources if you have time. These details may not seem all that important, but they set the scene for reading it as it was meant to be read, which is the only way to truly understand it anyway. And that's our ultimate goal in this study time, right, friends? <laughs> study tip number three. Listen to the day's Bible reading on the YouVersion Bible app or other app and with headphones if necessary. Listen for the overall theme of the passage. Listen for anything repetitive. Listen for anything unusual, confusing, exciting, and so on. Number four, when listening to and even reading the verses on YouVersion, try switching to other translations to see which ones are most understandable and meaningful to you. Reading in a few different translations can help with comprehension or may even give you a new understanding of the verses. Definitely a win. Once you find a translation you love, I would highly recommend buying a print version of that translation for use in your study time. Many, many study Bibles and translations are out there. It can certainly be overwhelming trying to choose. But if you're curious which Bibles I love to study with, head over to my mfaring.com website and click on the Bible study resources page for more information. Study tip number five. Now open your study Bible and read the chapter with your eyes and then out loud. Silent scripture reading is powerful, but reading scripture aloud and hearing yourself speak the truths found within it adds a whole new level of understanding, friends. Engaging both your sight and hearing together is also a great way to help cement what you are reading in your heart and mind. As a side note of value here, if you have time, it is very valuable to listen and or read the entire book we are studying at any given time. This will greatly help your understanding of what you are reading in the individual chapters, and I promise it will be well worth the time and effort of doing so. Study tip number six, go through the Bible slower now studying verse by verse, word by word, taking your time with it. Take note to why it was written and how it plays in the big picture of the Bible as a whole. This is also called the meta narrative, and we will discuss this more in depth later in this episode. Number seven, be sure to stop and look up the paired scripture from other parts of the Bible with what you're reading. Please don't skip past these. Other Old Testament and New Testament references are often found in the notes or margins of your study Bible. Take time to look them up, see what they say, and how they apply to what you are learning. Cross-references help interpret scripture with scripture. This is so important. Study tip number eight. Throughout this study process, journal what God is showing you. Jot down any thoughts that come to mind, anything that stands out as meaningful or encouraging. Write out scripture passages you want to take a deeper look at and circle words that stand out to you. Then look up the definitions of those words and copy the meanings down in your journal as well. I recommend using a Bible dictionary when looking up these terms, if at all possible. 
as it is an alphabetical guide featuring informative articles, along with the definitions of the people, places, and things that appear in scripture. And there are many free Bible dictionaries available through a quick Google search if you don't have one on your bookshelf already. After looking up those definitions, think about these written scripture passages on your journal pages and how you are interpreting them to help you process them more completely. Maybe try paraphrasing or even summarizing what you're reading to check for understanding. Number nine, more journaling possibilities include descriptions and references of Jesus connections you see, whether these verses are in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Big truths about God, such as his promises, character, or even the character of the people in the story. What does God say or do in these passages? What do the verses teach us about God, about what he loves and what he hates? What does this reveal about what motivates God to do what he does? We should not approach our study time by looking only at how it applies to ourselves and others, thus overlooking what the passages say about God himself. When we read our Bibles, we should first ask, what does this mean, rather than what does this mean to me? Number 10. Also consider writing down any questions to come back to and include how you are working out the answers to those questions. Maybe your favorite passages along the way with a reason why or what they mean to you. Key takeaways. Even journaling your prayers is another way to process them more fully and to then be able to watch how God answers them. Think about writing down what God has done to help you remember his faithfulness in difficult seasons in the years to come. These journaled items will document your faith journey with God and be valuable reminders of how God has already shown up in your life and will do so again. Number 11. After you have dug in deep for yourself, I would now encourage you to take a look at those footnotes in your study Bible. Continue journaling context, insights, and discoveries you find. This is also the time to reach for any additional study resources you like to use, such as a Bible handbook, concordance, or commentaries. Just briefly to clarify here, a Bible handbook is a book-by-book overview and is also a summary of what is inside each chapter. A concordance is an alphabetical listing of words and phrases found in the Bible and shows where these occur throughout all books of scripture, making it easier to understand the meaning of these terms and the context in which those words are used. And commentaries provide explanations and interpretations of the meanings behind scripture passages, while also including background information on the author, history, setting, and theme of each of the books of the Bible. Be sure to check the show notes for links to some of my favorites of these resources. Study tip number 12. And finally, now you may ask yourself the question, how does this apply to me in my life? I believe that we can pull a life lesson from every chapter of every book of the Bible today, even though it was written a long time ago. So find what that truth is and journal about it. One thing I have discovered over the years of studying the Bible is that life application of the same verse often changes as we gain different understandings based on new life stages, seasons, experiences, as well as our growing faith in and relationship with God. As we wrap up my study tips, friends, I feel it is crucial to make mention and dig into this fact here and now in our time together. I often tell people one of the most important things you can do for your faith is have a big picture understanding of the Bible as a whole. Then as you're digging deeper into these pages, you will have an overall understanding in mind of each book in order to always bring it back to the full overarching story that's actually taking place. The story of God and his unshakable love for his people. The Bible is a story of God pursuing his people despite their sin. Truthfully, this is a pretty big ask, and so I'm going to share my most favorite summary of the big picture story of the Bible, or what is often called the meta narrative, from the December Reflections episode of the Bible Recap podcast. 
This is from last year, of course. <laughs> I'm certain I couldn't find a way to say it any better myself, so I'm not even going to try. The Bible recap host Tara Lee Cobble says this. The Bible is one unified story. In Genesis, God sets out to build a relationship with one particular family known as Adam and Eve. But things go terribly wrong when they fracture their relationship through sin. But their sin doesn't surprise God. He already had a plan in place to restore this relationship even before it was broken, and he continues working out that plan immediately, undeterred and unhindered by their rebellion. He sets apart Abraham to be the patriarch of the family God calls the Israelites. They're a bunch of sinners just like all of us. God blesses them despite their sin, but sin still has its consequences. One of the long storylines of consequences is of the 400 years they spend enslaved in Egypt. God sends Moses to set the Israelites free from slavery. They flee to the desert where, little by little, God gives these people the basic rules of how to have a stable society. They're uncivilized people who have only just met God and Moses, and they're not keen on obeying either of them. In the midst of their stubbornness and sin, God knows what their hearts need is Him. So He sets up camp among them in the desert. More than anything, He wants them to remember who He is to them the God who rescued them out of slavery. But they keep forgetting, and every time they forget, they either get fearful and disobey, or they get prideful and disobey. Forty years after he rescues them from Egypt, their new leader Joshua leads them into the Promised Land and commands them to eradicate their enemies who live there, the Canaanites. God has warned them repeatedly that if they don't drive out the Canaanites, they'll become a snare and lead them away into abandoning God. And that's exactly what happens. So God raises up military leaders, or judges, to drive out the enemies who are leading his people astray. But this doesn't deal with the problem of their hearts leading them astray. The Israelites do whatever they want, leading to near anarchy. Despite this, there are pockets of faithfulness among the Israelites, and even among the foreigners whose hearts have turned toward Yahweh. Pagans like Rahab and Ruth who turn to follow God and his people. God has been telling us all along that he's going to build his people from among every nation, and this is evidence of that. Next, God raises up Samuel the prophet to lead the people, but what they really want is a king. God tells Samuel to give the people what they want, but that it's not going to go well for them. Their first king is Saul, a fearful man who makes rash decisions without consulting God. Then a shepherd named David is positioned as Israel's second king. He is a man after God's own heart, but he's still deeply flawed. He makes a few wicked decisions that mark him for life, but they don't mark him for eternity. God shows him astonishing amounts of mercy and grace. David is succeeded on the throne by his son Solomon. Despite being the wisest man who ever lived, he has a problem with Mormonizing and worshiping other gods. Yahweh is generous to him nonetheless and gives him the distinguished assignment of building Israel's first temple, the place where God came to dwell among his people in the midst of the promised land. After Solomon dies, the nation-state of Israel is divided into two separate kingdoms. Over the 350-ish years of the divided kingdom, God sends several prophets to warn both northern Israel and southern Judah about what's going to happen. They'll be overcome by other nations. First, the Assyrians defeat northern Israel and take them into captivity. Southern Judah eventually falls under siege by the Babylonians. When southern Judah falls, many of God's people in Jerusalem are carried off into exile. But God promises them that there's a timeline on this exile. He'll bring them back to the land in 70 years. Not only that, he'll punish the enemies who are oppressing them. And he doesn't leave them alone during their exile in Babylon. 
He sends prophets to remind them of his promises and the fact that his character has remained the same through all the generations, through all their sins. He's always been working out his plan for restoration. When the 70 years are up, he brings in Persia to defeat Babylon, and God causes the Persian kings to show favor to these exiles, not only letting them return to Jerusalem, but paying the bill for them to rebuild the city the Babylonians destroyed. They finish the temple and begin to offer sacrifices and celebrate feasts again, but they quickly fall back into their old patterns, oppressing the poor, marrying people who don't love Yahweh, dishonoring God and His Sabbath and His laws. God sends more prophets to rebuke them. The people are turning away because God's promises don't seem to be coming true. He reminds them that He has been fulfilling the promises. He brought them back to the land on the exact timeline He said and rebuilt their city. The end of the Old Testament marks the beginning of a period known as the 400 years of silence. During that time period, we have no written records of God's engagement with mankind, but we know He's there, working out His plan in the meantime, in and through His people. During this time, the Roman Empire starts to rise up and takes control of Israel in 63 BC. The Jews are tired and they're ready for rescue. They've been driven from their land, had their cities destroyed, have lived as exiles and slaves, had to rebuild their cities, and are now living back in their homeland under the oppression of one of the cruelest empires in the history of mankind. They remember God's promise to send them a new king who would conquer all their enemies and bring peace on earth. But they have no idea yet what that means, or how or when that promise will be fulfilled. Around 7 BC, the New Testament picks up, and once again, we see God actively working out His plan for redemption. He sets apart a man named John the Baptist, we call him JTB, as the forerunner who will prepare the way for the Messiah. JTB's cousin is a man named Jesus, and Scripture tells us repeatedly that Jesus is God the Son who has come to earth to live as a human. He's fully God and fully man, and he serves as another manifestation of the temple of God, where God comes to dwell in the midst of his people. Even before his birth, it's evidence that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about this Messiah. Jesus begins his ministry around the age of 30 after JTB baptizes him. Then he calls some disciples to follow him. They're from all walks of life, from the lowly fisherman to the wealthy tax collector. They travel all around the Galilee region as Jesus preaches a message of repentance and the hope of the kingdom of God. The disciples see him perform all kinds of miracles, from simple things like making lunch for thousands at the drop of a hat, to casting out demons, to healing the sick and raising the dead. Jesus seems to show special attention to those who are the outcasts and the overlooked, and he even ventures out into the non-Jewish areas to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, which is all non-Jews. While Jesus is generous and loving, He also has harsh words. He speaks with passion against people who oppress the poor or who are self-righteous, like the Pharisees and Sadducees. They've added to God's basic laws with their own burdensome rules, and they look down on others who don't live up to their standard. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. The outside is shiny, but they're dead inside. Jesus takes the good news everywhere he goes and promises his disciples that even though he will go away from them someday, they will continue to carry that good news with them and preach it to everyone who hasn't heard. They're part of an unstoppable kingdom, one that will push back the darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus. He begins to speak more clearly and frequently about his death, and even tells his followers that one of them will have a role in making that happen, Judas Iscariot. When the week of his death comes, he's in Jerusalem, preaching in the temple, prophesying, having dinner with his apostles, 
and then Judas hands him over to the religious leaders. They try him and have the Romans try him as well. And though Rome declares him innocent, the people want him killed anyway. They crucify him and bury him. But even death is not the end for him because he's been telling them all along that he will raise from the dead and that his kingdom is eternal and unstoppable. He lives on earth in his resurrection body for 40 days before ascending into heaven, leaving them with a promise to return and send his spirit to be with them in the meantime. About a week later, his spirit comes to dwell in his followers. Through his spirit and his followers, the message of the gospel is spread to the Gentiles. Churches spring up in other countries, and the apostles go as missionaries to help support and train those churches, even in the face of oppression, imprisonment, and beatings. Through all of this, they seek the Spirit for guidance as they encourage the churches, direct them, and even rebuke them. The main problems the churches are having relate to two different types of cultural issues and questions. A. Do Christ followers have to become Jews or follow Jewish laws? And B. Do Christ followers have to follow any laws, or are they free to do whatever they want? Just like the problem Jesus encountered with the Pharisees and Sadducees, the law is still a big problem, especially as it relates to different cultures and nationalities. The early church fathers respond to both questions with reminders they're bound only by love, not to Jewish laws and traditions, and not to selfish actions either. They must love God and love others, which is exactly what Jesus told them was the summary of the law. As the church continues to grow in number and spread in nations, false teachers start to emerge. They lie about who Jesus is, about the resurrection, and about the apostles and early church leaders. So the early church fathers have a lot to manage. On one hand, they have to work toward being united across different cultures and nationalities in the church. And on the other hand, they also have to work on separating themselves from false teachers. The ultimate goal is truth and love. Love without truth is foolish. Truth without love is arrogant. But truth and love strikes the balance Christ aimed for, to love God and love others. Even as persecution and oppression are on the rise, Jesus calls his followers to imitate him and display his character to the world around them. He promises to return, to recreate heaven and earth, and to live with us forever as we reign and rule with him in his eternal kingdom. Wow, that is a lot to cover. Thanks to Lee and the Bible Recap for helping us out with this. Summarizing the overall ideas, tying together a 66-volume set of books is no easy task. Well done for sure. (laughs) I know every bit of this, or even just a little bit that I've shared up to now in the podcast, may sound foreign and overwhelming to consider, but I promise that it will begin to make much more sense as we apply these study tips and take these approaches when digging into Scripture and each of the Bible study episodes to come. Basically, I am merely trying to provide a framework for all that is to come in our time together, friends. Also, please know this about me. Just like you, I want to know truth. So I spend a lot of time studying in the Word and researching views of scholars and other believers even. Research Brainiac, guilty as charged. I love studying. I really do. It brings me life. With that said, I am by no means an expert or a scholar myself. I just love helping people learn how to find and see and know God and his character. That is more important than anything else we discover here. When a certain king ruled or knowing all the specific details of temple construction are great to learn, but understanding the heart of the God of the universe who is in charge of it all and loves us more than we will ever fully understand is what will serve us best in this life. A million different scenarios could have led you to this podcast, but whatever the case, I'm praying for you right now, right this minute. You, yes, you, my friend, God knows your name, 
your circumstances, and exactly what He has in mind for you as we dig into His Word together. I consider it a great honor to journey alongside you. We're in it together, and I'm cheering you on every step of the way. Okay, please remember that this show is scheduled to release every other Wednesday wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. I know one chapter every two weeks sounds like a long time to wait in between, but I can promise you one thing. The more you dig in and dig deep using these study tips we discussed today, the more you will learn about the big picture story, about Jesus, about God's character, and even see yourself on these pages. Let's not just read the Bible together. Instead, let's seek to finally begin to understand how all the pieces of the Bible fit together to tell an amazing story that includes your life and mine today. And friends, could you do me a favor and share this episode with three or more people? Also, please go to your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and review because that is the absolute best way to help others find out about this show. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. <laughs>